Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, I want to start this morning by talking about this uh, particular and peculiar tendency that we sometimes have to misremember certain things as better than they actually were. Now, now sometimes we have a tendency to, to do the alternative is where we remember things as worse than they actually were, but I want to talk about the former. Our tendency at times to misremember things as better than they actually were. were. I, I do this sometimes. I've done this with physical places in the past. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. I remember going to Chuck E. Cheese for my birthday as a kid, and uh, I thought it was nothing short of the greatest place on the planet when my parents took me there. In fact, if you asked me to describe heaven as a child, it sounded oddly similar to a Chuck E. Cheese. I just remember walking in there, I think it was like maybe my seventh or eighth birthday, I remember walking in, the place was just so big and bright, they had all of these cool games, everyone who worked there was fun, and it just genuinely became like the greatest place I ever remember celebrating my birthday. Now, obviously, I didn't go to Chuck E. Cheese for a minute. Like, there, there was a, a long stretch of time that I stopped going because it's very weird when old people with no children go to Chuck E. Cheese. So I didn't go to Chuck E. Cheese for a very long time. But when my kids were born and they were old enough, I very much wanted to share with them my love of this incredible place that we know as Chuck E. Cheese. And so I will never forget when we walked in there with our kids and, and all of a sudden I stopped and I was like, where are we? This is, this is not even remotely what I remember. It was like, it was cramped. It just smelled like mildewy mops that clearly had not been employed for quite some time. Half the place was just broken. There's a burnout behind the counter who had no care for our experience whatsoever. He just was completely uninterested in us. And, uh, and I just wouldn't have been surprised to find like Chuck himself with his mask popped off smoking a cigarette out back. It was that bad of an experience. And so we have this tendency sometimes to misremember things as better than they actually were. And the truth is we don't just do this with places. Sometimes we do this with people. Sometimes we convince ourselves that a, maybe a past relationship was better than it actually was. Sometimes we do this with our circumstances. We have a tendency at times to like scrub the negative aspects off of past jobs or seasons of life, convincing ourselves that they were better than they actually were. And so the reason that I think that this is important to note is that we can actually make this same mistake in our relationship with God in general and the way that we read the Bible in particular. And by that I mean we have to be so careful not to read and remember the great stories of Scripture in a way that strip the messy struggle out of the lives of these people that we turn into heroes of faith. Because when we strip the mess out of the struggle, we remember them in a way that is better than they actually were. And in reality, I would define you to find one major character in the Bible who was not a significant mess in some way. 
And so as we come to this second to last installment of this fiercely feminine series that we've been in, I want to look at a clear example of the Bible's commitment to painting people in their full humanity. People who had all the same struggles and all the same mess that you and I do. And so this morning, I want to look at a woman named Hannah. And as we're going to see, Hannah was a a woman who serves as an amazing example of faith, but I'm confident that you're also going to see what a messy faith it actually was. And so why don't you do me a favor and open your Bibles if you have them, uh, or an app if you want to read on that, and go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. So Old Testament, 1 Samuel, if you can't find it, just turn to the table of contents in the beginning of your Bible, it'll tell you exactly what page to go to. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, and this morning I want to talk about Hannah the faith-filled. And as you're making your way to 1 Samuel, let me fill you in a little bit on what's happening in this book. Originally, 1 and 2 Samuel were actually one volume. Eventually, with time, they were divided into two because of their length. And in the Hebrew Bible, unlike our English translations that we have here, in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel followed right after the book of Judges, because chronologically, that's where it falls uh, within the story of Scripture, with Samuel actually being the last judge that Uh, Israel would have. Now, uh, the purpose of these two books was to record the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. In fact, the word king is the most prominent and most frequently used word in these two books, appearing some 350 times. See, when God promised that he was going to lead his people um, out of Egypt and into uh, a promised land, he also promised that he was going to give them a human king. He promised that in Deuteronomy 17. But this was not going to be a king like all of the kings that the other nations had. God's desire for them was what was called a theocratic monarchy, which means that they were going to have a human king who was fiercely committed to following and obeying God, who is the ultimate and sovereign king. And so these books primarily tell the story of three men. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 through 8, We read all about the birth, the call, and the leadership of Samuel. Chapters 9 through 31 is all about the failed rule of Saul, who was Israel's first king. And then 2 Samuel is all about King David, who would serve as the forerunner to Jesus Christ, the true king. Now this morning, we're not going to focus on any of these men. Instead, we're going to focus on the story of this woman named Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel. And right off the bat, you should know that Hannah was a woman of deep sorrow. But she was even more devoted to faith. And so we're going to look at these events that lead up to Samuel's birth in verses 1 through 11. And I want to break these verses into two parts this morning, all right? So part one, we're going to see Hannah's heartbreaking circumstances. And then in part two, we're going to look at Hannah's emotionally honest prayer. So let's start 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Hannah's heartbreaking circumstances. Listen to this says, there was a man from Ramathaim, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Whew, that first verse is brutal, huh? He had two wives. The first named Hannah, the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. Now, this man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were the worst, if you don't know their story, were the Lord's priests. 
Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Now her rival, Peninnah, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep, and she would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I'm not going to even get into that, but that is like all-time husband fail question right there, okay? We don't have time, but I'm telling you right now, Elkanah's a mess, okay? So right here out of the bat in these first verses, we're introduced to three main characters, right? We have Elkanah, who's the husband. We have Hannah, who was Elkanah's first wife. And then we have Peninnah, his wicked witch of a, ste- of a second wife. And so right off the bat, we have an issue. And that issue is that Elkanah had two wives. Now everyone say, that's a problem, Okay, so God's plan for marriage has always been and will always be monogamy. And we see this from Genesis chapter 2 when we read the Eden story of God's creation and we see so much of his intent and design for humanity. We see it from Genesis 2 all the way through to the end of the Bible. In fact, monogamy was still the norm in the Old Testament up to this point with a few unfortunate exceptions. Now, in the cases of kings, polygamy was often tied to political factors, like treaty marriages. But the truth is, even in lives of normal families like we read about here, polygamy could also be tied to fertility issues. This was a patriarchal culture. It was a very high honor culture. And in order for a a man's family name to move into the future, he had to have children, specifically sons. And so sometimes a man like Elkanah would wrongly take an additional wife or wives if for some reason he could not bear children with his first wife. And so here's what I think is so, and I feel like this should be like an all-time like duh observation, but we can't assume anything. And so what needs to be painfully clear in this is that the presence of polygamy in the Old Testament should never be read as God's approval of it. Amen? Just because it's in the Old Testament does not mean that God approves of it. And sadly, we live in a state with a long and terrible continuing history of polygamy, and it has disgustingly been practiced in the name of God. And the problem is, it's not the God of the Bible. God never designed, nor has he ever approved of anything outside of monogamous marriage. Furthermore, even in this story, we get to see the rotten fruit produced when marriage is taken outside of God's design. And so so even though Elkanah loved, and he even appears to, to genuinely favor Hannah, he took this second wife. It appears because Hannah was unable to have kids. And this second wife, Peninnah, she had no problem having multiple children, and she went to great lengths to cruelly Rub that in Hannah's face. And the text does not tell us this, but if I had to guess, I would bet that at least a portion of Peninnah's taunting was driven by her jealousy that Elkanah so clearly still favored her, favored Hannah, even though Hannah could not have children. But regardless, this story is ultimately about Hannah. 
And I think it's very important that we do our best to understand the devastating state of Hannah's psyche at this point. Hannah was a severely traumatized woman, emotionally and mentally. I mean, if you think about it, infertility is a devastating experience for any couple that longs to have children, and especially for women who were living in Hannah's culture, it was a crushing reality. Every single thing about Hannah's life reinforced this script in her mind that she was not enough. Think about this. Hannah could not have kids, and rather than love her unconditionally and build a healthy marriage with just her, Elkanah goes out and he gets wife 2.0. And every single time that Hannah saw Peninnah, it reinforced the script that she was not enough. And every single night when Hannah knew that Elkanah went in to conceive yet another child with Peninnah, it reinforced the script that she was not enough. And even as they made their annual pilgrimage to make sacrifices at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and they sat down for the celebratory meal, Hannah would have been tangibly reminded that she was not enough. As every portion of food was set in front of every one of Peninnah's children, it was a reminder that she was not enough. All the chattery conversation of these children that inevitably marked this meal would have been this signal to Hannah that she was not enough. Every laugh, every cry of every one of Peninnah's kids screamed that Hannah was not enough. And if that was not sufficient to crush her soul, Peninnah went out of her way to ruthlessly taunt Hannah and shame her for her inability to have children. And so Hannah was a traumatized, abused, and emotionally battered woman. And as such, she lived in a constant state of heartbreak. And as I thought about Hannah's state this week, I thought about us. And I just wonder this morning where some of you may be living with this sense that you are not enough. Like me, maybe you had a parent who abandoned you physically. And despite what everybody tells you and what you know to be true rationally, emotionally, you just can't shake this feeling that if you had been better in some way, they would have stayed. Or maybe, maybe your parents didn't leave physically, but they just simply failed to give you the attention, the nurturing, and the love that every child needs. Or, or maybe that love and acceptance was attached to this impossibly high bar that you constantly are trying to, even still, maybe even as adults, still trying to live up and into, but no matter how hard you try, you always seem to fall just beneath the bar. Maybe you've been in, or maybe you are in a relationship in which you have been told directly or indirectly that you are not enough. Maybe the endless barrage of marketing that we're assaulted with each day has slowly infected your soul. And it's given you this sense that your body, your wardrobe, your car, your career, your parenting, your home, they're not enough. And as a result, you are not enough. 
And so if you sit here this morning and you have any sense of this, there's two things I want to say to you. Number one, I understand. And then number two, Hannah's story shows us a way forward. Because I want you to see Hannah's emotionally honest prayer, the way that she responds in the midst of this constant state of just traumatized, battered heartbreak that she lives in. Look with me at verse 9. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord, and she wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. Now, on one of these annual pilgrimages that Elkanah's family took to Shiloh, Hannah has a particularly severe emotional breakdown. And so after suffering through yet another traumatizing meal, Hannah's soul breaks wide open. But I want you to notice that her response that's recorded in verse 10, it's so deep for us, it's so important for us to, to see it and to admire it and most importantly to emulate it in our own life. Because notice again, it says deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. So through her tears, Hannah is honest about what she's feeling and she pours out her desires and she even goes so far as to make this vow to God. She vows that if God would just allow her to have a son, that she would dedicate that son to him in service. And so if God would give her a son, she would immediately give that son back to God. And so this is a clear example of what I would call messy faith. Again, we can't remember Hannah as being in a better state than what she actually was. This is not the story of a woman so strong and stoic in her faith that she was unaffected by the trauma of her circumstances. Hannah is objectively a mess in this moment and throughout the majority of her life. Like if Hannah had walked in to Ridgeline this morning, I would and told me like everything that she'd experienced is described here, I would immediately tell her that she's going to need years of professional therapy and pastoral counseling because that's what it would take to heal from some experience like this. Yet even though Hannah is a mess, she's still a woman of faith. And so let me share with you a few ways that I see Hannah practicing messy faith here, okay? The first one is this. Number one, Hannah chose to trust God in the face of devastating heartbreak. Hannah chose to trust God in the face of devastating heartbreak. It's no small thing that Hannah chooses in this moment to run to God rather than to anything or anyone else in the midst of such devastating circumstances. And honestly, like we, we, we work hard to be an honest place here. And honestly, most of us are not prone to make this kind of faith-filled decision. For instance, sometimes we just stop trusting God altogether when he does not do what we want him to do. Do you have any idea how many conversations I've had in my life where people have told me that they have abandoned their faith in God because they either did not understand what God was doing or they did not agree with something that God had allowed? 
And even if we don't abandon trust in God altogether, we're prone to run to anyone and anything other than God when our hearts break. We distract ourselves through busyness and entertainment. Sometimes we go looking for comfort in relationship after relationship after relationship. Sometimes we numb the heartbreak with food or alcohol or sex or some other substance that takes away the pain for a season. And all of this should signal to us a failure of trust. But you know, the truth is, a broken heart can be of benefit to us. And by that I mean God can use heartbreak in our lives for something very, very good. And please understand, I don't say that callously. I don't say that to diminish the sincerity of the pain of heartbreak. It's real, it's awful, it can be debilitating, and there can be benefit in it if we're willing to see it. See, the benefit of a broken heart is that it destroys the myth of self-reliance. And that's a myth that many of us live the vast majority of our lives completely preoccupied with. I'm strong enough. I'm talented enough. I'm good enough. I can make this work. And none of that's true. None of that's true. And so Hannah prayed in her heartbreak because she knew that God was all she had. And so when our hearts break, so does the delusion that we don't need God. And and that doesn't make the pain less, but it does put us in a position to experience healing because healing comes from God. So Hannah chose to trust God in the face of her heartbreak. And we see that in the fact that she runs to him in prayer. But that's not all. Secondly, note this. Hannah believed that the infinite God was intimately involved in her life. Hannah believed that the infinite God was intimately involved in her life. In her prayer, if you were to look back at that, Hannah refers to God as Lord of armies. Other translations will say Lord Almighty. Hannah here is acknowledging God's covenantal name, Yahweh. He is the almighty God. He rules the heavenly armies. He reigns as sovereign over the entirety of creation. And despite this, Hannah also believed that God had the capacity to be intimately involved in the comparatively small matters of her life. She believed that God cared about her tears, that God cared about the damage that her trauma had caused. And so I want you to hear in this that God is never so occupied with the weight of creation that he is uninvolved in the very details of your life. He's never like, oh, we got this Serious conflict in the Middle East, so I can't really be concerned with what's going on in your comparatively not that big of a deal, not that hard suburban life. God never takes that posture with us. He's never so occupied with the weight of creation that he's uninvolved in the very details of our lives. Psalm 56, 8 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. I love this. He says, you have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. And that is not just poetry. You have never shed one tear that God does not know exactly the pain that it is attached to. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is 
yes, the infinite God of the universe, but also intimately involved in your life, because that's what Hannah believed. And then finally, Hannah had faith to believe God could handle the full weight of her emotions. Hannah had faith to believe God could handle the full weight of her emotions. Notice that Hannah doesn't exactly like pause outside of the tabernacle to like catch her breath and reapply her makeup. She's not even the least bit concerned about appearances. She doesn't even seem to notice Eli, who's the high priest, who's sitting in the room. In fact, if we had time to keep reading the chapter this morning, we find that Hannah is just so desperately praying in silence to a degree that Eli thinks she's drunk, which tells you a little bit about what Eli must have been working with in his life as high priest, that he's just like, again with this? Again, another drunk person stumbling into the tabernacle? She's completely un- She doesn't care who's around. She doesn't care who's watching. She knows her heart is broken. God is my good father, and he can handle the weight of everything that I feel. And so she openly and honestly and fully pours out her mess into God's lap. I've been following God now for about 33 years. I came to faith when I was seven years old, for real. I've been in all different kinds of churches. I've had a number of very powerful experiences with God. But I can tell you from experience that nothing has made my relationship with God feel more quote-unquote real than learning to pay attention to my own emotions and then how to talk to God about the things that I feel and the things that I think and the things that I actually experience. Now, unfortunately, it's taken about 31 years of my relationship with God to learn that lesson. Instead, I've spent the vast majority of my life treating God kind of like a waiter. And so every single day, I'd wake up and I would place my order with him, and then I would go about my day. God, God, here's what I need from you today. Here's what I need in my life. Here's what I need for my wife and my kids and my church. I love you. Thanks for doing all that. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And you know what? Those, those are not bad prayers. They just can't be the totality of one's prayer life. And the truth is, most of us have this waiter mentality with God, and then we wonder, why doesn't this feel like a real relationship? It's because it's not. Think about it. Like, What thriving relationship exists solely in the context of one side only making endless requests of the other? Try that in your marriage. It will not go great for you. No relationship can thrive like that. The truth is, God is not a waiter standing by to deliver our every desire. He is a father in pursuit of a genuine relationship with us. And until we learn to live in the open with him in all of life, we are always going to feel this relational distance with him. Hannah had faith to believe that God could handle the full weight of her emotions. And again, we don't have time to finish this chapter this morning, unfortunately, but what we learn is that God actually does both hear and answer Hannah's prayer. And God gives her a son named Samuel, who becomes one of the greatest deliverers and leaders in Israel's history. And so God did hear her in the midst of that. And so when I I look at this story as a whole, here's what I come away thinking about. I come away thinking this. God is moved 
by messy faith, which is really great news because our faith is always very messy. God is moved by messy faith. We, we are far too preoccupied with appearances. Like, wouldn't it be nice? Like, do you remember being in junior high? Some of you might still be there. You remember how just horrible you felt in junior high all the time? Just so insecure, constantly worried about everything that you said, everything that you wore, everything that you listened to, everything. You just were so consumed with appearances. And we look back at junior high for those of us who are adults and be like, oh, you need to mature out of that. Really? Think about how much of your life is driven by your insecurity. Tam and I went on our first like out to dinner date, like took our sweats off. I put a shirt on with buttons. I don't even do that for church. And we went out to dinner last night. And we were standing in this line waiting to get into this restaurant. So there's tons of stuff going on downtown. People in front of us, people behind us. And I was just watching these people and just, just thinking how much of our lives are driven by insecurity. You could like smell it on the sidewalk. It was so thick. And these were all adults. As people, we are so preoccupied with appearances. We want everyone, including God, to think that our lives are more pretty and more put together than they actually are. And so we feel shame when our faith is not what we think it should be. And we've been conditioned by very destructive teaching that says that if our faith was stronger, we would not struggle in the ways that we do. And the major problem with that teaching is like the whole Bible. Because the Bible tells us that struggle is universal. Jesus struggled. Jesus struggled with his emotions. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way that we are. He was without sin. He did not fail in any of the ways that we do. But he felt what you feel. He struggled in the ways that we struggle. Struggle is universal. You can have all the faith in the world. You are still going to struggle. We are all messy. And what God wants from us is to bring that mess to him. And so if you think about it, since the moment this service started, there's been a pretty consistent theme. And the theme has been that God is a faithful father, and as a result of who he is, we can run to him. And so no matter what the condition of our faith, no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've run, he welcomes us back. When we feel pain, when we are worried, when we are stressed, when we are angry, when we are confused, he longs for us to bring all of that to him, no matter how messy it may be. God is moved by messy faith. And so let's follow the example of Hannah and let's run to our father together. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are good, that you love us, and that your love for us is not based on the condition of our faith. Father, you have chosen in your grace and in your mercy to set your love 
on every single person who has ever and will ever exist. And we thank you again that you made a way for us to not be strangers with you any longer, but to be received by you as sons and daughters. Jesus, thank you for living, dying, and rising again so that that could be true for us. And so, Lord, I just pray over every single person listening. Lord, first and foremost, if there's anyone that does not know you, Holy Spirit, would you awaken their heart to faith? Help them to see the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that is held out to them by Jesus. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, more and more in all of our lives, when we experience both ups and downs, when we experience joy, when we experience pain, I just pray, God, that we would learn, even with messy faith, to just follow you in the messy, mundane, nitty-gritty of everyday life. I pray that we would not be concerned with trying to impress you, that we would not live concerned with trying to be impressive to one another, that we would live in the open because we are not saved because of who we are and because of the things that we do. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be preoccupied with trying to pretend to be better or different than we actually are. We are received by you by grace and mercy. And so, Lord, more and more, I pray that we would live in that space with you. We thank you for the example of Hannah. We thank you for the miraculous way in which you intervened in her life. And Lord, I believe that you want to miraculously intervene in each and every one of our lives as well. And so Lord, like Hannah, we pray that you would hear our prayers, even when they come through tears. That you would meet us in the heartbreak. And that you would do what you know to be best for us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.